What's to be made of the recent wave of athlete activism sweeping the globe? Do protests and political expressions have a place at the Olympics? What's the state of play for the Winter Olympics headed to China and the World Cup that's going to Qatar? What's been happening to female athletes in Afghanistan and how can sports battle gender-based discrimination and sexual abuse around the world? How does sport adapt to the world of post-COVID and vaccinations and potential mandates? I'm your host, Joey Lynch, and this is Beyond the Lead with Executive Director of the World Players Association, Brendan Schwab. A cursory glance at a history book would tell you that they've always done so, but it's been hard to miss the surge in athletes making their voices heard on matters far beyond the track, field or arena in recent years. In a world in which a footballer, tennis star, basketballer, swimmer or any other athlete can immediately reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people through the power of social media, their platforms are increasingly being used not just to connect with their fan bases, but to promote, amongst other things, fights against racial injustice, battles with gender discrimination and tackling climate change. This is taking place against a backdrop of increasing tension between the prevailing spirit of sport if it ever existed to begin with, and profitability and power. The business of sport, the huge sums of money at stake and the reputational laundering on offer, increasingly taking precedence over more antiquated and unprofitable notions surrounding the integrity of sport. There's also a little matter of COVID to deal with, both in how sports are able to balance the need to make money through large events whilst keeping its fans safe, as well as how it handles the rollout of vaccinations amongst its participants. A man at the forefront of some of these issues is Brendan Schwab, the current executive director of the World Players Association and a long-time figure in athlete labour movements. He's had involvement with global football players union FIFPRO and the Australian Athletes Alliance, and back in 1993, he founded the Australian Professional Footballers Association alongside former soccerer Kim Montaliadoris. His organisation, one with a truly global scope. Before I got to all of those other matters, I first asked Schwab, who is normally based in Switzerland, but is now back in Melbourne due to the COVID-19 pandemic, how his highly cosmopolitan workforce was managing the situation. Yeah, and we've always agreed, Joey, that it's important that in any call we have to share the pain. So there's always going to be someone who's experiencing uh, an awful time zone. But um, we have really tried to get as many of our team uh, home as we can during the pandemic, obviously, with the restrictions on travel. Uh, But we have an incredible team of people that cover the whole sport labor and human rights um, field and also some of the emerging fields which have become really important which we had to learn a lot about um, which we weren't expert in a few years ago and this is often you know just shows how troubling the world of sport can be but experts in child rights experts in dealing with trauma and abuse some of the really um, awful challenges that we see athletes experience globally which in my previous life um, or my previous work in the Australian Player Association movement was something which was far less visible. Now the World Players Association for those of our listeners that don't know represents around 85,000 players or so from professional sport across more than 100 different player associations around the world. So you're kind of like an overarching body for players unions from the likes of 
FIFA Pro for footballers, the NFL Players Association um, and the like. And we've increasingly been seeing, um, especially in recent, the recent years, athletes are increasingly speaking up um, around the world. There's been a recent call for action on climate change from Australian athletes. Athletes in the United States have been speaking out on racial injustice. Marcus Rashford and his campaign in Britain. We've had athletes from Myanmar speaking about um, the new regime that has taken over their country, amongst other things. A lot of people have welcomed this, but there also tends to be criticism. I mean, there was that catch cry in the US, shut up and dribble, for example. Should sports be separate from politics or human rights? And I guess, were they ever separate from politics and human rights? Well, I don't think they ever have been, but but it's always about power, um, Joey. And if we look at, for example, the Olympic movement, the Olympic movement is a very hierarchical movement. Um, it's led to yet to really allow the athletes to do two critically important things. The first one is to speak their mind, exercise their internationally recognised human right to freedom of expression. And the second is to unionise, to form organisations. But it used to be like that in the professional sports too. I think sometimes uh, the struggle of the professional team athletes is taken a little bit for granted. When professionalism first started at the end of the 19th, uh, 19th century, the first thing they did was they make the players the property of their clubs, chattels to be bought and sold. And it took some 60 years of struggle before the PFA in England, followed by the big unions in the United States, were able to win basic freedom of employment, basic dignity of work for um, professional athletes. And once they got unionized, the partnership model developed, which also saw the explosion in the businesses of these sports. So the consistency and the alignment between the rights of the athletes and the, and the business case for sport um, has, has always been there. And we think our movement now has established that for the best part of the last um, 60 years. The Olympic movement, of course, has yet to come to terms with it. The wave of athlete activism over the last two years, though, I think um, has taken things to a new level um, in that it's, it's universal and that we're seeing issues um, such as Black Lives Matter not only be a rallying call for organised action in the United States uh, over the cause of social justice, we've seen it interpreted very powerfully into... Um, local circumstances, for example, the case for Indigenous constitutional recognition, a treaty in Australia, an Australian uh, AFL players, for example, speaking very eloquently about that and, and the need for systemic change, not just um, promote certain causes, which sport likes to do, but actually change, change the system, which is causing um, the injustice. Part of our work is very much to focus at the Olympic level because it's global and it's multi-sport. And one of the things which we still don't understand is why the Olympic movement is so slow to embrace um, freedom of expression. Because if we look at its own history, if we look at um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith and Peter Norman in 1968 or Vera Kozlowska in 1972, those athletes have all been on the right side of history. They're, even the Olympic movement itself looks back and commends them for championing the humanitarian values of sport. And we deeply believe that sport should uh, not exist in a vacuum, but be a genuine force for good. I mean, on the subject of the Olympics, we did just have the Tokyo Olympics take place, a truly unique 
Olympic Games for a number of reasons. Of course, delayed a year because of COVID, no fans in the stands, the game's taking place under a lot of biosecurity um, measures as a result of that. Um, but we also saw before the Games, there was thinking, would we see clashes between the IOCs, no politics rule, and athletes wanting to raise their voices there? We did see a, a relaxation of a few rules that enabled athletes to do things such as take a knee um, before competition. Um, but we also saw, you know, the podium was still considered off limits. And I think we saw uh, US shot putter Raven Saunders crossing her arms after winning silver, which probably was the most noticeable display of protests on that front. We maybe didn't see as much protest as we were expecting. What were your thoughts on the games just gone? Well, I think that um, we were very concerned in the in the build up to the games in relation to the question of freedom of expression and also in relation to uh, the COVID-19 protocols. We did think they were inadequate. In fairness to the IOC, um, there were dramatic changes made in terms of the level of testing, for example, um, uh, in the, as the games uh, came closer. It's still too early to really understand the impact uh, of the games uh, on COVID-19 in Tokyo. It's clearly at a, a very um, alarming rate. Um, so we'll have to monitor that and, and get and we'll speak to our experts uh, to fully understand the connection between the games um, and the pandemic there. The political fallout, of course, has been uh, very significant. But in relation to freedom of expression, I think that uh, what's really interesting to understand is that for most athletes, the podium represents the pinnacle of their achievement. It's a moment for them to recognize, be recognized for what is the uh, end of what is often a lifetime uh, pursuit of, of, of athletic excellence. It's not common, and it was never under expected that it would that, that protesting on the podium would would become commonplace. And if we look at the examples I mentioned a bit earlier, they are rare throughout the history of the Games. And that's what makes the protest poignant. But what's very significant about the Olympic Games when they say that they're politically neutral, the podium itself is a political ceremony. It involves athletic achievement being recognised by standing attention to the national flag and the national anthem. And there comes a time for some athletes, not many athletes, but for some athletes, that, that that inactive step of just standing to attention fundamentally misrepresents who they are and what they stand for. And therefore, not only do they actually have a right to um, clear the record, so to speak, but they actually have an obligation for those who are they are partnering with back home or whatever their social justice cause is, that they stand true to that cause on all instances and don't allow the podium protest to miss the podium, I beg your pardon, the podium ceremony to misrepresent who they are and what they stand for. Because the Olympics being supposedly neutral, it does somewhat fly in the face to the way that nations around the world have approached the games, haven't we? We've seen over decades and decades, the Olympics has been a, used as a tool of soft power and, you know, putting forth the merits of one's political system, the, the, um, the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War, for example. And even at the most recent games, technically Russia didn't get to compete at the most recent games because of a doping program. So there's always been that factor behind the Olympics as well, hasn't there? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 but that's changing that, 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 that's changing. It becomes more and more complex as we go. If, if we um, look at some of the work we do, which is, which is probably the most complex, um, yeah, we've got the Beijing Olympic games, just a few uh, winter games, just a few, a few months away. Um, we believe actually that the IOC's real motive at this point is to keep rule 50 in place, which is the rule which constrains athlete expression because of the sensitivities associated with the human rights record in China. Um, and so let's just, you know, the IOC's position is to try and maintain the status quo to get that very uh, difficult uh, games uh, out of the way. There's already calls from the highest levels of the US government and the US political system for there to at least be a diplomatic boycott of those games uh, because of uh, the country's human rights record, especially the treatment um, of the Uyghur people. But if we look at just the recent period of time, we've seen the emergence of nation states really using sport um, to cleanse their images. Um, we look at the Qatar World Cup and the revolution of the and the revelations of the appalling abuse of migrant workers there, which has seen the global labour and sport and human rights movements try and actually improve the system on the ground there, including the abolition of the kafala system. But the political influence of states such as Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and others with very questionable human rights records is profound. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying to save uh, the Bahraini refugee granted asylum in Australia, Hakim Al-Arabi. He was granted asylum because there'd been a crackdown on athlete activists in the uh, Arab Spring almost um, a decade ago. And even as we speak, we're dealing with the fallout in Iran to peaceful protest. Athletes uh, applauded in Western countries and often rewarded with commercial sponsorships. But in some of these uh, regimes, we see athletes targeted by the political um, powers uh, because of their um, activism. We fought very hard to try and save the life of the Iranian wrestler, uh, Navad Afkari. Tragically, we were unsuccessful in that. He was horrifically executed on charges which had no basis in fact and I say that by reference to the reports of the United Nations human rights um, uh, bodies. Um, so the, 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 the vulnerability of athletes in repressive regimes is extreme. Um, the last two weeks, we've seen an extraordinary effort to get athletes out of Afghanistan. Uh, the player association movements played a very big role in that. This includes women footballers and women's cricketers, Joey, whose only act of activism was to participate in sport, such as the gender um, suppression in those countries. I did want to ask you about that. We've seen the distressing scenes in Afghanistan as the Taliban um, take retake control of the country. And as mentioned, there's been a flurry of activity trying to get individuals at risk out as a result, maybe for those of the listeners that haven't been able to keep up with all of that's been happening on that front, could you give us an overview on what's been happening with the athletes and the work of um, organization, well, players, organizations, sporting organizations and human rights organizations on that front? Well, you know, two groups, which, um, which you'll know well, FIFA Pro has really done an incredible amount of work and was instrumental um, in Afghanistan. That work goes back 
many years. Um, there was unfortunately um, appalling revelation of um, sexual abuse of the Afghan women's national team. Um, a lot of those players had to be represented, supported, uh, and a lot of them had to seek asylum um, by reason of their involvement um, in the national team. It was the women players themselves that led to the establishment of that team. It was very much a player uh, driven initiative. But what that meant was that there were very strong relations between FIFA Pro, the players, um, and human rights experts. And connecting that, fortunately, with someone like Craig Foster, who was able to really play a critical role in uh, ensuring that players were able to get uh, emergency visas to, to, to come to Australia, coupled with an extraordinary evacuation effort, meant that um, um, there was an, just an incredible capacity which, which was enacted very, very quickly. And um, it's something which our movement uh, has had to get very good at over the last five or 10 years ago. We very much started um, as a labor movement, as a, we, we are a, a global trade union federation, but you know, you, it, it's something to protect the labor rights of people. But if their fundamental human rights, uh, more fundamentally than that, are in question, then clearly we need to build our capacity and our network in order to try and um, save, save these athletes. I mean, because on the subject of sex and gender discrimination, we're continuous. We're continuing to see it at various levels throughout all of sport towards um, female athletes and athletes that identify as women. Be that in you know labour rights things such as equal pay, proper remuneration, access to facilities and training, to things such as horrific abuse, like you mentioned, the Afghanistan women's team, saw it in Mali's under-19 basketball team recently, Haitian football recently. How do we combat this? Well, it's, 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 well you have to learn um, about it and, and, and listen to the, the victims and, and, and try and give give victims voice. You know, one of the organizations I was introduced to early in this role is called the International Justice Mission. And, and it, it's, it's a global organization that deals with abuse. And it's just understand how widespread in society the issue of abuse is, is, is actually, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's shocking. Um, but I think sport likes to be different and treat itself as special and, and exceptional. But, but, but our experience is that on these big reforms, be it what I was talking about earlier, about the, the, the labour rights of the players first being recognised in the 60s or dealing with these issues, the solution doesn't lie in looking at sport as being different. It lies in learning the lessons from broader society. There's been some really important um, examples of best practice in terms of dealing, for example, with the su survivors um, of abuse. Um, there was a Royal Commission in Australia into institutional abuse. There are many lessons from that which we, which we pick up. I think the experience to the United States Catholic Church on reconciliation and compensation, going back to compensate victims decades ago, because that's often how long it takes before victims have the sense of identity to be able to report abuse. The lessons come from outside sport. And then when sport applies itself, um, then um, it becomes much, much stronger. Um, one of the most 
succinct statements of, of this comes from the Ropes and Gray report into the NASAD abuse in US gymnastics. And that's a, an independent law firm where they said that the sport created certain norms which normalize pain as being an integral part of athletic success. And so in that instance, the sporting norms were harmful. And I think that if we look back on a lot of the experiences of athletes, there was a, a tragic suicide in New Zealand recently. Um, it's this, this sense of identity that individuals are given, that they don't exist beyond the athlete, that there's no person other than the athlete. That when, but they can take that athletic identity away. They can take that athletic dream away. Then the outcome of that is very, very um, harmful. So we're de dedicated to making sure that the athletes are seen as people first, athletes um, a distant second. And we're seeing some really good practice around that, which also is showing that this is also greatly improving and enhancing the performances of athletes who feel freer and more um, capable to um, commit themselves to sporting careers without losing who they are, knowing that um, their personal identity isn't on the line. We talked a bit before about the coming Winter Olympics and the coming World Cup in China and Qatar. And the IOC and FIFA like to talk about the potential of these events as changes and bringing positive change. I think I saw a post recently about FIFA teaming up with uh, LGBTQIA plus um, organisations and charities to try to bring change to Qatar. Do these tournaments, in your opinion, foster positive change when they go to these sort of places? Uh, not without systemic change. So what, what, what we see is that sport likes to promote humanitarian causes. It likes to, for example, even if we look at our own Australian Football League here in, in, in Melbourne, it's done a lot of work in terms of promoting just how amazing the Indigenous players have been over a long period of time. We have a round of matches dedicated every year during NAIDOC week to um, Indigenous people and Indigenous footballers in particular. Yet at the same time, despite having a racial vilification policy for 25 years, it has been unable to deal with systemic racism. Um, Eddie Betts, one of the game's greatest players, retired with a 300-game career saying it's an unsafe workplace because of the racism. And we saw the awful circumstances around the retirement of, of, of Adam Goods. So what we do at the World Players Association is we, we believe that global sports simply must be conducted in accordance with United Nations standards. We're not alone on this. There's um, all um, a major global movement on the part of brands and broadcasters, governments, um, the UN agencies themselves um, to, to reform sport in this way um, because what we say is sport can't promote humanitarian causes unless it first respects the rights of its people and then protects them and this this framework of respect protect in order to promote is very very important but unfortunately many sports are starting and ending at the promote factor and failing to respect and protect the rights of their own people. And this applies not only to race, it applies to gender discrimination, it applies to freedom of expression, and it applies also to the right to form a union.
because really, if we look at the athletes that enjoy the greatest rights at the moment, they're the highly unionized athletes. And um, that, that great enabling right of freedom of association is something which is really um, um, undervalued, I think, by many in sport and, uh, and certainly in the International Olympic Committee. Mentioning in there the collective labour of athletes and World Players Association at its core, a labour organisation. Um, one of the biggest uh, issues facing sports right now, you touched on it before, is the subject of COVID-19, keeping athletes safe from COVID-19, keeping the fans that attend and the people that work at these games safe and preventing outbreaks and things going into the community. Um, what, how is sport going to need to adjust in the face of COVID-19 and what is likely to be a new world? We'll never go back to the world, a pre-COVID-19 world it's looking like at this point. Well, you know, I think that um, you know, when the pandemic it's, it, it, it's now, what, 18 months ago now, first um, became apparent, was first declared by the World Health Organization. Now, we were facing the biggest um, economic and health crisis that, that, that our industry um, had faced. One of the reasons why our unions wanted to set up the World Players Association was not just to advance matters of collective concern, but also share best practice. And I must say here, uh, the sharing of knowledge between our unions, particularly the incredibly well-resourced unions, such as the National Football League Players Association and, 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 and in baseball and basketball and, and, and hockey in, in, in North America was, was really important. We were able to access world-class scientific, medical, epidemiological advice, and then start to negotiate protocols so that we could actually return to sport but the principles which guided us then was always that the public health question had to come first that 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 was always clearly understood um, but you know we were able to get most sports back um, I think women's sports suffered because um, um, its seasons were were interrupted more fundamentally than the men and that's because really we we only wanted to get when I say we the industry, had to get it back for economic reasons. Let's make, if this was just sport, we wouldn't have played, but of course it's big business. And so the business imperative, the careers of the players meant that um, we were able to negotiate, we being all the different player associations, really complex science-based protocols that required enormous commitment on the part of the players. Um, what we found was that the higher the physical um, integrity for example the of, of those protocols which involved hubs um, great seclusion of the players for long periods of time the mental health consequences were were very concerning so we didn't think that that was a, a long-term solution now with vaccination um, we are certainly encouraging the players to get vaccinated we're encouraging the community to get vaccinated. Our industry depends on international travel and mass gatherings. And so um, clearly the, the, the quicker we can achieve uh, the vaccine rollout, the better. But we always think that for the foreseeable future, that's only part of the solution. We're still going to have very significant um, protocols in relation to the way in which the game is played and trained. The world is increasingly seeing vaccinations as a way out to at least a new normal and it varies wildly depending upon 
the, uh, the jurisdiction and the political climate of that jurisdiction, but we are increasingly seeing a number of industries bringing in vaccination mandates for their workers. Um, do you or the World Players Association have a view on what would happen if we saw leagues or teams bring in vaccination, manda vaccination mandates for their players? Well, we haven't had to, to, to get to that stage um, yet. Um, but, you know, um, for, if you look at the National Hockey League, players need to be able to travel between the uh, United States and Canada. So closing the border may and I think does require uh, vaccination. Um, so we, we, we are subject to the, the broader um, laws of the land and need to do whatever we can to, to um, comply. Um, you know, players owe each other, they owe their fellow players a duty of care. Um, and at the same time, an employer like a league or a club has to provide a safe workplace. So we, we tend to think that um, um, vaccination is, is a reasonable direction of the employer, um, provided there are important carve-outs in relation to anyone who has a, a health vulnerability um, and anyone who has, for example, a, 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 an honestly held religious um, objection. Um, I think that that's where we'll go. Um, but at this stage, we haven't had to deal with um, mandates. Um, and when we will, uh, we'll deal with it, I'm sure, with the same responsibility as we have, um, which has enabled sport to return over the course of the last 18 months, and that is to be science-based um, and be willing to negotiate very onerous obligations on the parts of players to make sure that not only is the public uh, protected, but the players themselves are as well. And I understand you can't speak on specific cases because you've got, well, you're the overarching body and there are specific unions that do these battles, but we have seen the NFL Players Association has recently opened an investigation into Jacksonville Jaguars coach Urban Meyer when he admitted that he did take into account players' vaccination status when it came to making roster cuts. If you've got two players on the bubble who are the exact same, one's vaccinated, one's not, he'd attended to err on the side of the vaccinated player. In an elite environment where availability can be said to be the best, um, availability can be said to be the best ability, does vaccination status become akin to simply being an injury-prone player? Is that a fair perspective from a labour relations dynamic or is it discrimination to look at it like that? Look, I don't know. And I think that the answer to that will, will vary enormously. I, I don't think... Um... I don't think it's helpful for, for, for leagues and clubs to start that type of approach because it just polarises. And we see a lot of polarising behaviour um, at the moment. I think that we've had incredible collective discipline around the response to the pandemic on the part of players around the world. And, um, and, and we've allowed science to, to guide us. Um, as I said, um, if, if players are subject to legitimate individual um, vulnerabilities, um, then they sh certainly shouldn't suffer any detriment in the, in the workplace um, um, as a consequence of that. And if there isn't a union negotiated uh, vaccine mandate, then certainly vaccination status should not um, be taken into account. Mm. And just looking at other potential issues on the labour front, there are 
so many of them. So I don't want to, you know, give much of a preamble and preempt your answer. But in your position at the World Players Association, maybe outside of COVID, what are some of the biggest fights for organised labour in the years ahead, in your opinion? I, I think it's um, as I said when we when we were started, and we were only set up at the end of of twenty fourteen. I took on the role middle of twenty fifteen. We were brought together for two main reasons. The first was to promote best practice and common interest and and, and, and common learning among our group. And I, I shared with you our experience in COVID about that. But what's also been really important, for example, is what we call player development and well being, the athletic career path is always short-term and precarious, even for the greatest players. And so our movement does an extraordinary amount of work in the education, personal development, mental health, and social well-being of players. And we learn enormously from that. For example, I think that New Zealand rugby and the All Blacks environment is, is probably world leading in that space. And it's just fantastic to see programs devised there picked up by unions in Europe and North America. Um, and that, that, that um, building of the movement is, is really important. But the second reality is that there are so many decisions being made at the global multi-sport level, uh, which are harmful for athletes, which can be career destroying and which we as a movement have not been able to get an adequate seat at the table. They include things like the Olympic Charter, which regulates effectively every athlete in the world, uh, the World Anti-Doping Code, which we see as being manifestly unjust yet incapable of dealing with systemic cheating, such as the Russian example that you've mentioned earlier. Um, we've, had, we've asked WADA to undertake a major impact assessment of what its regulatory system has on athletes because it just doesn't know that. It's been around for 25 years and has never asked itself the question how its system is impacting um, on athletes. And if we look at, say, at the Essendon Football Club, we can see that even the court of arbitration in sport can have a major impact on the rights of players in a domestic sport. So these matters all need to be um, dealt with um, at the global um, level. I think we're seeing an enormous rise in the number of players who want to get organized. I think the last few years, it's been extraordinary, for example, in the rise of the organizing of, of women athletes. Our movement is very proud of that. Um, equal pay, as you mentioned, is, is, is a key issue. Um, but I can't really see any of the systemic changes being addressed unless the athletes can organize themselves into unions with the same effectiveness of what our stronger unions have had. And one of our key goals is to make sure that uh, global sport recognizes the rights of athletes to organize and form unions. Um, when I was at FIFPRO, we were able to establish unions in places like South Korea, which would otherwise be impossible. We were able to do that because FIFA and FIFPRO made that a safe thing to do. So I really think um, it's a great enabling um, way to go is to ensure athletes are organised so that the myriad of issues that, that we need to deal with can be, can be negotiated based on uh, best knowledge and based on athlete buy-in. You mentioned wider there and it got me thinking about something that I've been thinking in the past. We're increasingly seeing with athletes, if you look at footage of any sport, 50 150 years ago compared to now it's just night and day the difference in what human beings are capable of doing now you look at the 100 meters from a year ago compared to now one might as well be a jog compared to the other so there's always that need for 
constant improvement and constantly pushing the boundaries of what is actually possible for a human being to do. At some point, does there need to be a need to almost protect athletes from themselves that they don't ruin their bodies and their future lives in the pursuit of one shredding a millisecond off a time or something like that? Well, I think when you say athletes from themselves, you know, I, I referred to you a bit about, you know, the NASA situation in US gymnastics, where you talk about norms mm. that, that certain cultures are created and certain cultures can certainly create an environment where an athlete thinks he or she is becoming a better athlete, but they're actually in a harmful um, system. So we certainly do need to address the culture and we certainly do need to develop athletes as people so that their sense of identity transcends uh, who they are um, as, as, as athletes. On the specific question of doping, plainly, we don't want athletes having to take harmful uh, drugs in order to enhance performance so that they can pursue a career. They should be able to safely pursue a career without that. So we certainly believe that um, anti-doping rules um, have a very, very important role to play, but that doesn't, but, but how do we define doping? Um, smoking marijuana for reasons unrelated to sporting performance is not doping. The, the confusion, for example, of substances of abuse with doping has had uh, devastating um, health consequences. And then doping has become such a technical uh, thing that athletes are suffering two, four-year suspensions when it's absolutely clear that there was no enhancement of sporting performance. All of these types of things do is devastate athletes and undermine athlete confidence in the system so they need to be reformed and and the system will be stronger um if if the authorities will welcome um that those those reforms we're reasonably optimistic that wada will move down that direction we've been working with them for years they made some changes to the code in 2019 around substances of abuse and same with the ioc you know they published a major report um late last year uh, it, partly authored by an Australian, Rachel Davis, um, on how it needs to adopt uh, a human rights strategy. And that means treating athletes in accordance with United Nations standards. So I think that the momentum is building and that these reforms are not too far away. Maybe just one last one for me, Brendan, because you've been super generous with your time. But all of this stuff we've been talking about, it's really heavy stuff, um, isn't it? It's, you know, it, it, it can weigh upon you and you know ostensibly we're talking about all of this stuff in sport sport is supposed to be fun it's supposed to be a tribal experiences with your friends and your family and your fellow supporters and like do you are you still able to find sport fun can you still get lost in just the joy of watching athletes compete i very much so you know very much so and i i, I um sort of make sure that i do that um, you know, I, I, when I was living in Switzerland, uh, you know, I enjoyed watching the Swiss league very much. I like to plug my team, the burn young boys, um, uh, which is in now in the champions league. You know, we, we, we do have that element of the fan in all of us. Yeah. It's also a great privilege working with the athletes themselves and, and, to, and, and to really understand that, 
they are people. <laughs> they have their own struggles. Um, and when you say it is heavy stuff, you know, they get their head around this without too much trouble because the principles are pretty straightforward. The principles are do no harm and treat other people with dignity and respect. And if we can stick to those principles, then sport's going to be, be much, much stronger. Well, Brendan, as I said, I won't keep you any longer because you've been super generous with your time and you are a super busy man. But thank you for joining us very much on ESPN today and good luck with everything that's ahead. Thanks, Joey. It's been a pleasure. Clearly, there's a multitude of issues facing sport in the coming years and decades. Many of them that have progressed far, far, far beyond matters on the field of play. The coming Winter Olympics and World Cup, principal examples of sport colliding with human rights, diplomacy, economics, health and more. But that's a discussion for another day, and for now, I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead, this time for a talk with Executive Director of the World Players Association, Brendan Schwab. I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and don't forget that beyond this episode, you can find every episode of Beyond the Lead, and each and every episode of all of ESPN's collection of podcasts, wherever you so happen to get your potties from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead or any of those other pods, make sure you subscribe while you're there. Give us one of those famous five-star reviews and let someone know that you're enjoying this pod. I'd do the same for your podcast if you asked. <laughs> but anyways, thanks for tuning in today, tomorrow, or wherever you happen to be catching this episode. And I'll catch you for another deep dive into sports as ESPN takes you Beyond the Lead very, very soon. <laughs>